This podcast is a production of Schweitzer, a United Methodist Church, transforming lives by making disciples of Jesus Christ. What you all think about this quote? We've got to talk about Jesus in a language that is not our own. We're called to overaccept the culture to continue God's story. You know, I've got to be honest with you, this uh, statement by Matt Rawl, who's a United Methodist pastor down in Louisiana, part of that just kind of makes me cringe. We've got to over-accept the culture to continue God's story. Because, frankly, there's a lot of things in the culture I don't get. I mean, Super Bowl commercials, about a half of them just kind of blow over my head, just to be honest. And some of the things that I get about the pop culture in particular, I don't necessarily like. But that's not the point. The world has changed and no one asked my permission for that to take place. Well, today, we're following a guy around to Athens, the Apostle Paul, who is in the culture, who understands the culture, who accepts the reality of the culture and not necessarily in agreement with it. Paul is one of our heroes as he goes into Asia and into Europe with the good news of Jesus Christ because he loves people. He loves all people. He has the love of Jesus in his heart, and he's willing to put up with incredible things. i got to tell you, that before we meet up with Paul in Athens today, since we were with him last week in Antioch, he's been to Iconium and he's been stoned, left, drug out of town, left for dead. He's been beaten to a pulp in Philippi and thrown in jail. He's been run out of Thessalonica, and that's not even the half of it. And yet this guy is able to continue to step into the culture, into this town of Athens in a way that is absolutely incredible in his faithfulness because he believes that God really raised Jesus Christ from the dead. And that's what matters the most. That's the point. And so John Pollock, in talking about Paul, He makes this observation that we can learn from Paul. And what we learn from Paul is that Christians must outlove and outjoy and outthink and always welcome those who oppose us. That's an incredible challenge. And the only way that I know that I can do that is to have the love of God in my heart. That's how we pull it off. So today we're going to Athens. What do we know about Athens? Well, Athens was named after the goddess Athena. And Athens is filled in, with all kinds of statues and monuments. The great Parthenon is in Athens, the ruins that are there today from the 4th century B.C. And uh, just keep moving through the slides. Uh, you see the great monuments, you see the great statues... You see this incredible town that was filled with uh, emperor worship. All kinds of monuments to different types of emperors. In fact, it was said that in Athens you could find a god easier than you could find a man. 
rich in history, full of culture, full of the arts, beautiful columns, beautiful structures, beautiful statues. And in the midst of all this, there, were, there was the theater, there was the arts, there was the, the place in which people would go for the great Greek tragedies that talked about the human condition. And in, the most important thing of all about Athens is, is the Areopagus. Sometimes it's called Mars Hill in the scriptures, same place. The Areopagus is the place in which um, there is a seat of learning, an intellectual town. It's a place where people like to talk about and theorize about the philosophies and the theologies of the day. And so it's in Athens where there's a very, very small Christian community that Paul is able to step up to Mars Hill and to talk about what it is that he believes in a culture that is adverse to what he has to say. You know, before we go there in Scripture, I was thinking about what's a town today that's similar to, uh, to Athens back then. And I would say it's probably Boston, Massachusetts. And why would I, I think about Boston? Well, you know, the interesting thing about Boston, by the way, how many of you have been to Boston? Yeah, quite a few of you. I've never been to Boston, been to Athens, but never been to Boston. But Boston is named after a Puritan's town back in England. It's rich in history. It's full of monuments to the Revolution. Paul Revere's statue is there. It's a rich city in the arts, in theater, in culture. It's a sports town, just like Athens is an Olympic town and was uh, the games of the Athenians. Um, Boston has its sports teams. I don't particularly love the Red Sox since they beat the Cardinals twice this century alone in the World Series. Uh, they got a little football team that's not too bad, not too far from there. And one of the distinguishing things about Boston is it has Harvard University. Harvard University, which was started by clergy, primarily Unitarian clergy, right there across the river. And in Boston, there's a very, very small Christian community. I'm a part of a, of a, a cert certification process where I'm learning to become a spiritual director for two years. And in that process, I travel back to uh, New England about three different times. And I have two cohort friends that are from Boston. And they tell their story about what it's like to live as a believer in Jesus Christ in the historic understanding that Jesus is the unique Savior of the world and was raised from the dead. One of my friends was a Unitarian. And at 50 years of age, when he wasn't even seeking God, he had a dream. And in that dream, Jesus Christ appeared to him. And he woke up believing and knowing that he had met Jesus in his dream. And he tells his wife, who does not understand, how he's come to this faith. And he stays in the circle of Unitarian friends because it's politically correct. If you're going to be a believer at all, be a Unitarian in Boston. But do not subscribe to the evangelical notion of faith and the uniqueness of Jesus Christ as a Savior. And so uh, he's a part of the evangelical movement in Boston 
Another one of my cohort friends is she's a counselor. She goes to the arts. She's an intellectual. And yet she talks about in Boston, you know, everyone's into themselves so much. And you go out on the streets, everyone's just looking at their cell phones. Not that much different from Springfield, Missouri, when you think about it. But she says it takes a two-week snowstorm in Boston for people even to recognize and be friendly to each other. It lasts for about a day. But she says it's very, very difficult to be a counselor who is a Christian and be accepted by her colleagues in Boston. Now, friends, it doesn't matter whether we live in Athens or whether we live in Boston or whether we live in Portland or whether we live in Springfield. We are living in a culture that is rapidly changing. And the Christian point of view is not necessarily even understood or appreciated. And what we can learn from Paul is how do we engage the culture of our day in a way that is respectful, in a way that is civil, and a way that is uncompromising in the essence of the truth that Jesus has risen from the dead. We can learn a lot from Paul. Let's go there with him now. So while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, them are his friends. So, you know, remember, he's been beat up, worn slick. He's left friendless in Athens, licking his wounds. His spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and the Stoic philosophers also conversed with him, and some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus in the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus. They bring him up to Harvard University. He gets an invitation to speak at Harvard, saying, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting. For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now, all the Athenians and, and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. And so, what do we find in the Areopagus, in this great university town? We find two great philosophies. We find Stoicism and Epicureanism. And the Stoics believed that the soul endured the body. The Epicureans did not. The Stoics were fatalistic in the sense that they believed you just go through life with a stiff upper lip, you handle the harshness of life, and you live a virtuous and good moral life. The Epicureans were just good old hedonists. Eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow you die. And so you have these two primary schools of thought that Paul is addressing, seeking to engage with them on their turf. And you know, the thing about Paul is he's ready. He's an intellectual. He speaks four different languages. He's no country pumpkin. He's learned from scholarship. He knows the philosophies. He knows their poets. He knows what's going on in the culture. And he always acts respectful, and he seeks common ground. And yet he's fully aware 
that the schools of thought and the way in which people are programmed to think are very different than what he has come to believe about Jesus. Now today there's a new book out and called Jesus Among the Secular Gods. And in that book, it's just out this month, there are six secular gods that's named. We don't have time to go into this. You might want to jot this down on your app or on your notes. But there's the secular gods of atheism and scientism, pluralism, humanism, relativism, and hedonism. And when you think about that, you and I are swimming in a culture where these have primary effect on the way that we see life, the way we view life, and it's shaping us in ways that we are not even aware. So you and I are living in Athens, too. Now, in the midst of this, as Paul is speaking to the Athenians, he's speaking to all of us about the core essence of what he believes. Let's read on in the scripture. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, Harvard University of the day, I love this, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription to the unknown God. What therefore you worship is as unknown, this I proclaim to you. Now before we read on, Paul is seeking to connect with them on their turf. He points out the idols, the monuments, the statues, the emperor worship that's going on, and certainly of Athena. And he's saying, uh, I get this. I perceive that you're religious. He doesn't put them down for that. He seeks to make a connection with their belief system. But then he goes on. He says, the God that you, who made the world and everything in it, being the Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he has made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God in the hope that they might feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us. For in him, he's quoting one of their poets, he's quoting the philosophy of Plato, in him we live and move and have our being, as some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. What is Paul doing? He's connecting with the truism, with the truths that he can adhere to in their philosophy. You know, it's not bad theology to say God is more than the man upstairs, which is what I hear a lot of Christians say. I would rather go with the philosophy that Paul quotes, that in him we move and have our being. That God is up close and he's personal. And he, when he quotes the poets that says, uh, we are all his offspring, that's good theology too. That everyone that we know, everyone that we meet, every human being is made in the image and likeness of God and has intrinsic worth and value. And that's better than some of what I hear Christians saying. And so Paul, again, he's building a connection He's building a bridge in terms of what 
He knows they they speak and they believe. But it's at this point in his speech that he must be drawing a deep gulp because he knows what he's about to say is not going to be accepted by many. He goes on. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and the imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. Because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. And so Paul says two primary things. And he says this in every speech, in every sermon of any length in the book of Acts. And by the way, Peter does too. And by the way, Stephen does too. In every sermon and every speech recorded in the book of Acts, there are two R's that are always included in the message. Repentance and resurrection. Paul says it doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter how rich or famous you are. It doesn't matter how wealthy how many pedigrees, how much learning. Whatever is going on in your life, how religious or irreligious you are, whatever you believe, whatever philosophy of truth, there is a God in heaven that is up close and personal and he's calling every one of us to repent. He's calling every one of us to hit the pause button. He's calling every one of us to stop living for ourselves. He's calling every one of us to life change. He's calling every one of us to redirect our life to the living God. And here's the proof in the pudding. That's an old expression. (laughs) He raised him from the dead. The resurrection is the proof that this unique Jesus is the savior of the world. Now, it must have really been hard on Paul because he's got 500 people in one place back in Palestine that's separated by a body of water and the internet is not up yet who have seen the resurrected Jesus in one place. I mean, most of those 500 people are still alive. He wishes he could bring them there as witnesses, but he can't. But even in this place, he cannot compromise the essence of the faith and that is that God is raising from the dead on this basis you know we're all called to repent and live this new life following the commandments of love and being changed where the power that raised Jesus Christ from the dead is the same power that raises up to newness of life Paul uncompromisingly calls all of us in Springfield as well as in Athens, to recognize that we are living in a darkness, in a spiritual darkness. And we are influenced with all kinds of different schools of thought. And there is truth 
in these different schools of thought, and there's value in this truth, but there is this ultimate truth that is pervasive, and it is the only transformational hope of all humanity, that God has raised this living Jesus from the dead, and we can all repent and believe and follow him. Well, what happens in Athens after he makes this speech? (laughs) Well, now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. But others said, we will hear you again about this, which was a polite way of kind of pretty much dismissing him. So Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined and believed. Some believed. Among them was Dissidious, the Areopagite, one of the members of the council. One. He got one convert. And what we know about this guy is he becomes the first bishop of Athens, and he was martyred for his faith. And a woman named Damaris and others with them. That's important because wherever Paul goes, and when you, if you read Scripture and you read what Paul says about women, I think many times people can um, miss the point of what he's primarily making is that women are called to be leaders too in the church. And whether he's in Philippi getting Lydia, or whether it's Priscilla rising up in Corinth, or whether it's Damaris in Athens, in in a culture and in a Roman Empire and in a time where women are devalued, in the earliest movement of the Christian faith, women, as well as men, are called in equal relationship and leadership in this movement. And that is no small thing. Now, friends, uh, what do we learn from this? What do we know? And what can we learn from Paul? That we got to talk about Jesus in a language that is not our own. That we're called to overaccept the culture to continue God's story. You can pop that quote up there again if you want. That's where we started. So how do we do that? What does that mean? You know, as uh, I get somewhat older, I know it's harder for me. It's a greater challenge for me, especially to get and understand the pop culture. And it's important for me to be able to engage with other people that are of a different generation. It's important for all of us as a church to hear from people of a different generation who remind us that just as Paul was able to understand the culture of his day and to step into that and to meet people on their turf and to speak with respect and dignity, to be able to look for the human condition that is represented in art, in theater, in movies, and in other forms of media. So recently I sat down with K.J. Rohlke, who is our director of modern worship. You know him. And Taylor Likes, who's our media guy. You know him. And Taylor wanted me to let you know that even though he's not in this particular quote, the whole video, a seven-minute video, is posted on website. So Taylor is not there just as eye candy in the video that you're about to see. But I want us to listen to what KJ has to say to us about an appreciation of learning from these different forms of art, the message of hope and redemption. One of the verses that I love is um, when Paul writes, you know, we are aliens in a foreign land, like we're in the world and not of the world. 
Um, and I think it's really cool that Paul is so good about um, engaging the world through the world's means, but bringing the truth into that conversation. He gives credit to, um, to the people of his day, to the, uh, the intellectuals, to the academics, to the artists. And he says, what you're doing is good. It is, uh, it's good, it's good work and like there's merit and credit to it. And he doesn't discount it and say like, ah, oh, that's all just bad thinking. But he says, well, at least in my mind, he says, you're not going far enough. You've gone 90% of the journey, but the 10% is where real redemption and where real salvation comes. Uh, and that 10% is Jesus Christ, um, and that the little bit that they're missing, right? So maybe um, it, today Hollywood does a really good job at explaining the human condition and saying, um, oh, this is what happens when people are put into certain situations. That's one of the draws of like The Walking Dead, right? Is like post-apocalyptic shows that put you in um, certain almost impossible situations and then explain examine how humans react to those situations. And I think if Christians then were to say, look at what happens, and I actually don't know anything about The Walking Dead, I just know that that's a post-apocalyptic show. But I think if Christians were to say, look at what happens in this storyline of The Walking Dead, and if this person had only had this, if there was a Christian in the situation and they had acted this way, then none of this other bad stuff would have ever happened, right? So it's like you get, 90% of the way, but it, you just miss that 10%, and that 10% is the real make or break point. When we are able to be honest about like our personal history, our personal context, and then say, this is what I'm bringing to my faith, and out of that artistry comes, and not neglecting the pain or the hurt or your personal context, but also not neglecting your beliefs that Jesus Christ is Lord, that he is uh, making good of all things for those who love him. And that merging of the two things then, I think, could put us back in the forefront of creativity. Uh, but I think it's the lacking of that. When you lose your own humanity and just copy what others are doing, that it makes it feel inauthentic and it just makes it feel like you're parodying something because you're not clever enough to come up with something on your own. You can talk to anyone in, who likes movies and say, oh, you like movies. I did this similar thing. Check it out. You know, and when you've got that relationship and you've also got that point of connection with movie making or film scoring or art and artistry, I guess, um, or if you're uh, an intellectual and you're like, oh, I was reading this article online, you know, what do you think about this? And someone else is like, oh, I was reading an adjacent article, you know, that you have those points of connection that start you along the path of um, potentially life-changing discussion. And if you take it the whole 100%, then you end at Jesus and you end at, um, saying this is what life is about. So you and I are living in, a, in Athens, and we're living in a time and a place where there's all kinds of different thoughts shaping our culture. There's all kinds of different values. But no matter who the spokesperson is and no matter what is being said, can we look and listen carefully? Can we look for the human condition? Can we look and hear the cry of the human heart? Listening in one ear to the culture and the human being made in the image of God and valuing that person regardless of how off-putting they may be or frustrating it is. And listening with the other ear with this hope that God has for that individual. That this is a person for whom Christ has died. And that the hope, the ultimate hope that we have is living, is the living Jesus living 
inside each of us. You know, at Schweitzer, we have several people and a lot of different folks that step onto our campus. And I love what I heard last week, and I hear this often. I don't know that I believe all this stuff about Jesus, but I can't deny that there is a spirit that is here. And what we pray and what we hope for is that no matter who you are, you're treated with love and respect and hospitality, and you are welcome. And that there is a spirit here that you know that is greater than a human spirit. It is the spirit of God. It is the spirit of the living Jesus. And there's something about the place and the faith and the interaction and the ministry and the programs and what we do that is compelling and makes you want to hear more. So where are you this morning? Are you among those that mock or sneer? Are you among those that believe? Or are you open to hearing more? Will you pray with me? God, I want to thank you for the Apostle Paul. I want to thank you for transforming him from a belligerent, narrow-minded Jewish man to a Jewish man that sees you as the Messiah, Jesus, and relentlessly continues to proclaim the truth, trusting in the power of the gospel, engaging with all kinds of people in all kinds of places, in all kinds of schools of thought. And I pray that you would help us to be that church today and you would bless every person here with the knowledge that you are risen from the dead and that the same power that raised you from the dead can give us newness of life. In the name of the Father and Son and Holy Spirit, amen.